Well, I'm uh, pleased to be able to return to this mini-series that we began at the beginning of the month of April, and we have had two separate weeks to look at this topic of identifying and cultivating maturity, and we will have this week and then next week we will wrap it up. So I've taken an entire semester with the teens and uh, consolidated that down into these four weeks together, and uh, one of the difficult uh, Things to learn as a young man in ministry is how to cut things out of a sermon. So this has been a, uh, a sanctifying and helpful process for me to be able to go back through these, uh, these rich truths and, and take out the things that I don't think are as essential to get the point across. But the, the goal in this series is to identify and cultivate maturity. And the, the central focus of maturity is the necessity of spiritual maturity. That's what we took the entirety of the first week to look at. Spiritual maturity must remain of central importance in the Christian life and certainly in the lives of those who are discipling others, in the lives of those who are raising children, wanting to, uh, to cultivate spiritual maturity within them teaching them the Word of God and seeing the Lord produce what only He can produce. And furthermore, we want to help our young people develop in some other key areas of maturity. Last week, we looked together at physical and intellectual maturity, the idea of growing in wisdom and stature before the Lord and before men. Your children have been entrusted with a body and a mind from the Lord, and we want to help them learn to steward their strength and energy and to apply their mind to acquiring knowledge and being diligent and using their time wisely. And this week, we turn our attention to another two topics or areas of maturity, that of social maturity and emotional maturity. That's what I want us to look at together this evening. When we speak of social maturity, we are seeking to help Young people and those that we disciple grow in a God-honoring relationship that yields spiritual fruit in their lives. We want them to be relationally mature, socially mature, able to interact well with others. Social maturity is the ability to interact well in adult-level conversations. We should be able to talk about important topics with a level of humility and vulnerability. It is disappointing when you try to talk to a young person and they're unable to interact with questions of faith or how they view the world or anything of substance. And I say when you talk to a young person, but really it's even more disheartening the older and more mature they should be in a relational, conversational level and they're unable to interact with anything of substance. That's what I am identifying here as social immaturity. The one who is socially mature has the ability to interact certainly with adults at high-level conversation and also the ability to interact with children and yet not be like the children that they're interacting with. So they're able to uh, bring the truth down to that level and interact in a way that engages young people on their level and yet uh, does not descend to their level of maturity. What causes someone to remain socially immature? Now, I think I grew up with a very flawed perspective, and I thought homeschooling was a cause of social immaturity. 
I say that now as we're homeschooling our own children, but I grew up with some cousins that were homeschooled, and I thought, oh, there any social awkwardness that these cousins exhibited was all because of homeschooling. I certainly no longer think that is the case. It is a heart issue. Uh, I want to help identify two enemies of social immaturity, or I'm sorry, two enemies of social maturity. So these would be what produce social immaturity. The first enemy of social maturity that I want us to consider is that of self-love. Self-love. The person who is filled with self-love, the reason they're so weak in social maturity is this. They believe, if, if my own thoughts are of highest importance, why would I need to hear anyone else's? I believe the primary issue in the heart of a young person, or an older person for that matter, that keeps them from displaying maturity in relationships is that they are crippled by self-love and insecurity. We tend to blame our selfish tendencies in relationships on what we call an immutable God-given characteristic about ourselves, like our personality. And, and certainly, we all have varying levels of personality, varying uh, temperaments and dispositions uh, into uh, being outwardly engaging with others. But what I'm identifying here is not just someone who is, is exhausted after a day of interacting with people socially, but rather the one who says, I do not want to interact with anyone else, and they would blame it on being shy or introverted. It's too hard to talk to people. It's too difficult. It's too revealing of my own life. We do not say I am insecure and afraid of what others will think of me. Or I I love my own comfort more than I love this other person. Or I'm afraid of how I'll be viewed by this person or by others if I actively engage them in conversations. We protect ourselves by just saying, I'm shy. (laughs) uh, I'm not an extrovert. I want us to turn to Proverbs 18.1. Jonathan said it's a study in the Proverbs. It is largely a study in the Proverbs because the Proverbs have so much to say about maturity, but we will be in some other passages as well tonight. Let's begin with Proverbs 18.1. We're identifying the first enemy of social maturity, that of self-love. Listen to what the proverb says. He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. Notice what this individual does. They take an intentional initiative to isolate themselves from others. It does not specify the group here that they are isolating themselves from. It could be family, could be church could be their peers but it is someone that they should be associated with and yet they are separating themselves they're isolating themselves they're withdrawing becoming the lone ranger so to say the anti-socialite the person who is obstinately setting themselves apart from the group that they should belong is this group or this individual here who separates himself Why do they intentionally separate themselves? Is it because they're shy? Notice how the proverb diagnoses this issue. It is a heart issue. He who separates himself seeks his own desire. It's selfishness that causes this person to withdraw from the group that they're supposed to be connected to. 
All his thoughts lead to himself. His, his measure of life is according to his own desire, his own thoughts, his own wishes, his own comforts, his own perspectives. This is the person who believes whatever is in my own mind is supreme, so I don't need any interaction with anyone else's minds. The diagnosis of this person, notice it says, he quarrels against all sound wisdom. This term is the essence of maturity in the Old Testament, that of wisdom. And the person who is isolating himself is quarreling against sound wisdom. This individual has set themselves against wisdom because it does not originate in their own minds. Therefore, it's to be avoided. The one who thinks that they do not need others is quarreling, or literally it's, it's breaking out or striking out against. Uh, this is the idea of, of showing your teeth, that word quarreling against, is that of expressing anger, breaking out towards something, almost growling at it, so to say. The one who will not humbly interact with others will not arrive at maturity, will not arrive at biblical wisdom, And this proverb identifies the problem as that of self. It is self-love. They are consumed with self. Anyone who is consumed with self, separating themselves, seeking their own desire, will not arrive at maturity, and certainly not social maturity. Let me show you now a second enemy of social maturity. It's what I would call insecurity, or we will see the biblical term for this, that of fear of man. The second enemy of social maturity, I've called insecurity, says this, if I interact with others in relationships, they're not going to like me. They're not going to accept me. They're going to harm me. It's going to result in my demise. If I open myself up and interact with others, I'm, I'm going to be the one suffering here. To be biblically, socially mature you must care more about God's perspective of you than the people around, uh, more about God's than their perspective of you. A man named Ed Welch said it this way, God must be bigger to you than people are. He gives some reasons why we fear other people. We fear people because they can expose or humiliate us. They can reject us, ridicule us, or despise us. They can attack, oppress, or threaten us. All of these reasons give people the power and right to tell us what to feel, what to think, what to do. And biblically, only God has that right. Only God has the right to command us in our lives, here is how you must think and act and do and feel. So what are we talking about here when I've called it insecurity? Young people often call it peer pressure. Uh, The older term for it might be that of people-pleasing, but biblically the term we like to use is called fear of man. Fear of man does not mean that you are terrified of the male gender, although it may be at some times. The biblical concept of the fear of man is holding someone, another person, in a, a condition of awe, being controlled or mastered by their perception of you, worshiping other people putting your trust in them and needing them to validate or fulfill your life. Man in this phrase does not mean you only fear men, but rather people, women, even children you could fear. What it is is you are acting in such a way so as to get their approval or acting in such a way because you are crippled by the thought of what they may think of you. 
The Bible teaches us to fear God and not man. That would mean the opposite of what I just said about fearing man. We would rather hold God in awe. We'd be controlled by Him. We'd worship Him. We'd put our trust in Him. We would look to Him for true fulfillment. You may say, I don't know if I fear man or if I am uh, prone to people-pleasing. Here's some uh, common questions to examine the fear of man in our heart. I've compiled this list from a a few different books and from a few different pastors, and I've just picked kind of a couple of them that suit this topic of social maturity. When you compare yourself to someone else, hoping you come out better than them, it's fear of man. When you wish to be thought of more highly than you should be. When you notice that you are not being noticed. When you worry more about how you look on the outside than the condition of your heart. When you have self-pity because you are not invited to something. When you wonder why people don't reach out to you more. When you get sinfully fearful of others' perception of you. If you're prone to speak in ways that exaggerate or you just simply lie to look good. If you fear speaking in public at the same time, If you like speaking in public too much, it's not interesting. If you play favorites with certain people while not being as thoughtful to others. If you fearfully cower in conversations when you should be speaking the truth. If you keep friendships shallow, people at a distance as a way to protect from building deep friendships. If you regularly and without invitation voice all your personal opinions to others. If you are more known for talking than listening. If you remain quiet and subdued because you are fearful of what others may think of you. Or when you are distracted in a conversation because you are more concerned with what the individual thinks of you than what they're actually saying. These are all just identifications of fear of man in the heart, particularly in how we relate to those around us. This is one of those sins that is so common that we rarely consider how destructive its nature is on our relationships. You're already in Proverbs. Go to your right just a little ways to Proverbs 29.25. Proverbs 29.25. Very helpful verse on the fear of man. Solomon says, The fear of man brings a snare. But he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Someone describes the fear of man as bringing a snare. The snare here is a a term used by a hunter or a fisherman. It would be a trap to catch their prey. The idea is not simply to catch them as though you want to catch this, this prey in order to make it your pet and express your affection to it. It is trapping in order to devour the, the snare here is not a little hindrance to your life, but a trap that leads to your destruction. That's how the author is speaking of fear of man. The sin of fearing man, if it is, if it is undealt with, is a spiritual cancer and a relational cancer that will destroy your usefulness. It will destroy your relationships. Just as a trap leaves an animal defenseless and vulnerable, so also will the fear of man ensnare your life and leave you helpless and socially immature. What's the fear of man do in our interactions? It, it causes us to wear a mask. 
You fear what someone else may think about you or say about you, so you put on this mask, depending on the people around you. You, you present yourself in a certain light because you think that is going to protect you. So you put on this mask of intelli- intelligence or athletics or popularity or creativity or spiritual maturity or even, I see many people do this, teens particularly, put on a mask of immaturity uh, around certain people because they want to relate, they want to fit in. These masks are intended to protect you from hurt or shame, but they end up hurting more than helping because they do not allow for a real relationship to be cultivated because you in that moment are acting in such a way that you think will be well-received. You're not being genuine. When actions are induced by the fear of man, it leads to a, a dead end of hurt and shame. It does not produce a real relationship with, with, with real social maturity and beneficial interactions between others. There is another way, a way of being primarily concerned about the pleasure of Christ rather than pleasing people. The fear of man turns the people around you into a resource for your own pleasure rather than seeing those around you as opportunities to serve and to minister to them. They become an opportunity for your own advancement rather than someone for you to bless or someone for you to learn from. Fear of man turns relationships to primarily being about you, about your own pleasure, your own image, rather than being about the glory of God. Solomon gives a contrast to being enslaved to the fear of man. And it is not the contrast that we expect here. It is rather, it's a use in Hebrew poetry that is rhyming ideas rather than the sound of words. So Solomon tells us the contrast to the fear of man is this. But he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Trust here describes where someone finds security and comfort. It is your place of refuge. So the contrast between being enslaved to the opinions and praises of man is to make the Lord your refuge. This is to find your contentment, your security in what God thinks of you rather than man. To fear man is to trust in man. It is to entrust yourself to man. You are living to please man or for man to please you. Man becomes the goal of your life. This is What Peter was rebuked for, setting his mind on man's interests rather than God's. Whereas when you trust in the Lord, you are finding your security, your purpose, your value, your very purpose in life and what God has said rather than the opinions of the people around you. For us to grow in social maturity and to be of maximum benefit to those around us, we must repent of this fear of man, this self-love and insecurity that we've been identifying, and entrust ourselves to the Lord. We must live by the principles of Scripture and not by the opinions of men. Biblically, the contrast to fearing man is just that fearing God. And rather than seeing others as an opportunity for your own advancement, you now see others as an opportunity to minister the love of God to them. If you have a a right fear of God, a love of God, how do you interact with those around you? You love them. You seek to minister the word of God to them. Biblical love for others 
will cause you to go into a conversation not with the attitude of what's in it for me, but rather, how can I minister the love of Christ to this person? Just think about the, the difference in the person who is, uh, who is so fearful of others that they're, they're drawing back from interactions, they're seeking their own desires, and then there's this person who trusts the Lord. Their refuge is in the Lord. They're not concerned if this person, they walk across the room and have a, an awkward greeting with and, and they begin talking to them. They're not concerned about how that person views them. They're just concerned about how that person views God. They want to minister the truth to them. They want to get to know them so they can minister to them. Such a, a different perspective. One is considering, how can I be affirmed? How can I be fulfilled in this conversation? How can I protect my image How can I improve this person's perspective of me? And the other is considered about being a blessing to this person, pleasing the Lord rather than pleasing oneself or pleasing the people around them. This is the essence of God honoring social maturity. It is biblical love for others, not a crippling fear of them that is actually identified as self-love. These are the two enemies of Social maturity, that of self-love and insecurity, selfishness and fear of man. Let's be very clear. We can be socially mature, able to have adult-level conversations and even interact with younger people without the Spirit of God in our lives. Let me be clear here. There's an ability to have a a social maturity uh, that is... Uh, motivated by all the wrong things. So as I described social maturity early on, and then I, I talked about some enemies of social maturity, someone could actually be living in self-love and insecurity, and that actually is a fuel for them to try and interact on a high-level adult conversation. That would not be a motivation that would be pleasing to the Lord, but uh, someone could have a a high-level adult conversation, but be motivated by fear of man, wanting to impress others and be seen in a certain way. A teen could interact well with children and not be insecure that someone would look down on them. And it might not be because they are seeking to uh, honor the Lord in that, but they might just find enjoyment in it. An unbeliever could stay away from bad influences merely out of a desire to stay out of trouble or uh, a teen could be wise and careful with their words and interact in, in conversations in a respectful manner and just be motivated by staying out of trouble. So I, I highlight this to say we have the goal of developing in social maturity, but it is not merely for these outward abilities of having adult conversations is what I'm trying to get at here. We want to address those heart issues If you see your young people uh, pulling back away from interactions or even an older person that you're discipling that's not integrating into body life, not cultivating relationships, what I want to urge you to do is look to those heart issues. Is there a dominating self-love in their life that is keeping them from engaging in relationships? Or is there a a dominating insecurity or a a protection of self going on? They fear man and they're isolating themselves, seeking their own desires. They're withdrawing to the sphere of man and they're ensnared by it. When you see this in someone's life, call them to biblical repentance. Help them see what it is in their heart that is keeping them from social maturity. Now I want to 
have a, a slight turn here and turn our attention to emotional maturity. Now, emotional and social maturity do go very well together because our relationships are often drastically affected by our emotional maturity. And on the other hand, our emotions are often greatly affected by our relationships. The, the teen years, I believe, are particularly difficult for emotions. It is a challenging season of life, going from the season of childhood to the season of adulthood and all the difficulties that come with it, the family dynamics, the peer relationships, the changing body, the, you know, the schoolwork and the pressures of life in that regard, feeling the pressure of trying to figure out what to do in life and understand who you are and what your own convictions are and what you believe and what you're skilled at and what you really love. Then there's what Pastor Jerry Ragg calls the industrial strength passions with no ability to control them. It's a a difficulty in the season of life. It's a a time where fears creep into the heart. Fears of acceptance and rejection or fears of success and failure. Fears of expectation versus reality. I just want to think about how do we gauge someone's emotional maturity? We'd ultimately examine their ability to manage their emotions in the midst of various pressures. What would it look like for someone to lack emotional maturity? Uh, Being a parent of young children, I, I see this in our home that all of our children at different ages are at different levels of emotional maturity. Where one child might have an emotional meltdown over just being told no to something very simple and Another child that has made some progress in that area, but yet faces another difficulty and they are not able to emotionally handle that situation. We see that certainly throughout the child years and even on to adulthood where someone might be able to face a certain pressure and then another area just uh, puts them over the edge of not being able to deal with their own emotions in a circumstance. Immaturity in emotions is clearly seen by an inability to face certain pressures and remain in control of your emotions rather than those emotions controlling you. The emotionally immature are controlled by their emotions. Fear grips them. Insecurity cripples them. Anger overpowers them. Sadness just covers their life like a wet blanket. Happiness intoxicates them so much that they can't even think straight. When things are going good, they don't even think. They're just overflowing with this excitement. Guilt might plague their mind so that it is all they can think about is their failure. This is emotional immaturity, the inability to handle these emotions in different pressures. Uh, I want to emphasize that emotions alone are not the problem. Emotions in themselves are are not sinful. God actually gave us emotions. He has given us the ability to experience a wide range of emotions and feelings such as fear, anger, guilt, anxiety, regret, shame, happiness, joy. God made us to be able to exhibit these emotions. And just to say it briefly, the emotions themselves are not the problem. It is rather the inability to handle those emotions. Emotions can be quite complex. Sometimes it can even be difficult to diagnose which emotion we're feeling in the moment. And then you don't know whether to laugh or cry, or 
You, you have so many mixed emotions. We say something like, this is bittersweet, because there's a, a sadness to it and a sweetness at the same time. We're, we're trying to express that reality that emotions are complex. We often don't even know how to articulate them. These emotions themselves are not the problem. Again, it's the inability to control them. So how can we make progress in controlling our emotions? I want to give here two keys to emotional maturity. Two keys to emotional maturity. The first one is thinking before acting. Sounds so simple. But yet, it is something that has to be pressed into us in the Scripture. We're still in Proverbs. Look back at Proverbs 19.11. Proverbs 19.11. The first key to emotional maturity is thinking before acting. Proverbs 19.11 says, A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. This term discretion here describes his ability to think in the moment. The high-pressure situation in a man's discretion makes him slow to anger. Why? So he is experiencing some outward situation, and how does he respond in the moment? Does he act the way he acts based on his feelings? No, he is thinking here. He is exercising discretion. This discretion causes the man to have a long fuse emotionally. He is able to control his anger. I just want you to think together with me. Why would discretion cause someone to be emotionally in control? Because discretion is the idea of discernment. They are trying to understand the situation. They're trying to think about all that's going on right now rather than just thinking, how do I feel? Let me express these feelings. Let me, uh, we'll, we'll talk about in a moment how those emotions and how we express them might be a protection for us, trying to control a situation. But this man exercising discretion is seeking to understand the situation. He's trying to factor in everything that is going on before jumping to a conclusion. Notice this man's discretion makes him slow to anger. It doesn't say that he would never arrive at the emotion of anger. It is rather that he, if he ends up there, he's going to be intentionally there. He is angered over something that is an offense against his core convictions. How many times have you responded sharply in a situation and then you later got more information and you regretted how you reacted initially? We have all done that many times. We respond too quickly because we are acting before we're thinking. We are responding with emotions and we're not taking the time to process the information that we have and to, even for the Christian, to tell yourself how to respond. So we were processing, bringing in all the contributing factors in the circumstance and then the believer is going through their, their biblical lens saying, how do I see this situation according to the wisdom of God? That's going to dictate how I respond in the moment. The second part of the verse highlights an expression of this wise man who was actually wronged. So he was actually sinned against. It says, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. The idea is he processed the situation and he was transgressed. He was sinned against. 
It, he could in that moment have chosen to respond in anger, but it is his glory, his adornment, his, his dress to, to respond in a way that overlooks this transgression. It's not that he ignored it as though it never happened, but he chose to show grace. He chose to respond how God responds to us and forgive this sin that was done against him. Let's turn to Titus chapter 2. We are on the topic here of thinking before acting. And a verse I love in Titus 2 is Titus 2.6. Now here, Paul is giving tailor-made instruction for each group in the church. So he has addressed in, uh, in 2.2 older men, in 2.3 older women. And then those older women are to address the younger women in 2.4. And then you get down to 2.6, likewise, urge the young men. Just uh, for uh, our humor here, notice older men have four instructions. Older women have five. Younger women have seven. Younger men have one. Yeah, that's not to say there are not more temptations in the, a younger man's life but I do think it is highlighting the essential component for young men to, uh, to, to exemplify this attribute, that of being sensible. It says, likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. And I would add in the beginning of verse 7, in all things. Urge the young men to be sensible in all things. These young men include those that are of the same season as those who are young women. In the preceding verses, this is the the season where they're entered into adulthood, but they are at the season where they would be getting married and raising children. Uh, In this time where Paul is writing to Titus would have been from the teen years on up until uh, where they're firmly in adulthood with a family of their own. Here he is given this command to Titus, urge the young men. This is uh, indicating continual action, and it's, it's much stronger than the way that he was addressing the other groups. Here, he is urging them. It's the idea of coming alongside of them. It's, it's almost to say that these young men need more up-close personal interaction than the rest of the group in some way. And he calls them to be sensible. What does it mean to be sensible? I do want to point out that this sensibility is something the whole church is called to. In 2.2, older men were called to be sensible. In 2.5, older women are to teach the younger women to be sensible. All the way back in chapter 1, verse 8, being sensible is a requirement for elders. It is a, a, a qualification to be an elder is to be sensible. So this is something that everyone in the church needs, sensibility. But it is something that particularly is a danger in a young man's heart. I believe Paul is boiling down what is crucial in a young man's life. If you could teach a young man one thing, teach him to be sensible, to have clear biblical thinking. This clear biblical thinking produces self-controlled biblical living. Young men have to be trained how to think. This is implying that a young, man's, a young man's mind is going to be naturally driven by impulse or by feeling, by carnal desires, rather than being driven by truth, thinking carefully and critically in the moment. 
That's what this call to sensibility is. It is a call for biblical wisdom, for clear thinking, a self-controlled mind. It is the discipline of guarding one's thoughts. So back to our situation, something happened, something out of your control happened. Even as we're reading in Proverbs, someone sins against you. The young man that is being called to be sensible is to respond in that moment by taking inventory of the situation. All right, what's going on here? Before I act, I need to think. I am to gather the information try to understand the situation very well, and then I am to think carefully and critically about how God tells me to live in this situation. That's what it means to be sensible. It is a a mind that results in a disciplined life. The sensible mind will not suddenly be swept into sinful anger because they are thinking carefully and able to recall truth in the mind. A sensible man is not attracted to impulsive worldly living. He's able to tell his mind how to think in the moment. It's not as though they have no more emotions. It's not the idea. Teach young men not to have any emotions or passions. It is rather teach them to think carefully. Teach them to think biblically. Teach them to think before they act. I also add in that phrase at the beginning of verse 7. In all things, I believe it should be attached to the instruction to the young men. I believe it fits better contextually and grammatically with this charge to be sensible. It is implying that a young man must be examining every area of his life. He must not close certain doors of his mind and say, God can't have access to this area over here. I'm going to live by feeling an impulse over here. No, we are to be sensible in all things. This is the first key to emotional maturity. Think before acting. Let me give you one more. The second key to emotional maturity is controlling yourself, not your situations. What do I mean by that? Controlling yourself, not your situations. I say this because emotions are often a tool in the tool belt, so to say, of the emotionally immature person And they express those emotions as a means of controlling the situation. Any parent of young children knows this. It is your child trying to control an outcome by exhibiting exponentially more emotions than the situation would call for. They're they're responding in such a way that they want to manipulate the parent to their own desired outcome. Screaming or crying whenever... It's not rational. It's not as though they lost a toe. It is, they may be screaming like they are, but it, it could just be they were told no to something. And they think that by screaming, expressing their supreme disapproval with, with your authority in parenting, that you are now going to be caused to soften on the fact that you told them to go to bed without dessert or whatever it may be. This is a, a temptation and a tool in the heart of the emotionally immature. We try to control circumstances rather than controlling our own emotions. We use those emotions to do so. Adults can do the same thing. The adult who blows up in anger when the circumstance is not to their liking. They express their supreme disapproval and, and screaming or throwing things or being physically violent why they're trying to manipulate to ultimately get their own desires 
even seen this in someone responding to situations with uh, just depression and bitterness and sulking and their, their own sadness. They're often using these emotions to seek control of the situation. And the exhortation here for the emotionally mature is to control yourself, not your situation. Why? Because you ultimately cannot always control your situation. We are finite. We lack sovereignty. That is a good thing for us. We trust in God's sovereignty. So whatever our wise and gracious God ordains for our lives, we need to be able to respond with self-control. Self-control. Look with me at Proverbs 14.29. Proverbs 14.29. There's so many Proverbs we could go to. I've had to cut so many. I'm trying to just give you a couple that I believe draw out this principle. He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. The one who is slow to anger proves that he possesses something. He possesses great understanding. This understanding is the ability to discern carefully between two opposite lines of thinking, and they're able to look ahead with a little bit of foresight and say, this is the right path. I know where this leads. I also know where this leads. I know the dangers that would come if I respond this way, and I'm going to be slow to anger. I'm going to, back to our first principle, think before I act. Notice the person without self-control. He who is quick-tempered exalts folly. He is praising something. He is boasting something. He has a short fuse and he jumps to conclusions and he spews out his emotions before searching out the matter. And such a man proves the foolishness of unwarranted emotional outburst. A few verses earlier, Proverbs 14, 17, a quick-tempered man acts foolishly and a man of evil devices is hated. This person is is acting on their own impulses they're not seeking to control themselves in the matter they're just acting for their own desires to control a situation proverbs fourteen thirty. just briefly since we're right there it says a tranquil heart is life to the body but passion is rottenness to the bones this is just to say the person who controls themselves in the matter a tranquil heart is life to the body whereas passions, that aggressive response is rottenness to the bones. He's saying it is actually a physical benefit to your life to control yourself in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of, uh, of circumstances you couldn't control. To have a calm heart, a tranquil heart is going to give life to the body. And we know this medically speaking. You're protecting yourself from stress and anxiety, which will bring out a world of medical problems for you. Self-control is highlighted in the Proverbs. Flip over to 25, 28. Proverbs 25, verse 28. Like a city that is broken into and, and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. A city without strong walls is easy pickings for their foe. They could come and take full advantage of this city while they are sleeping with nothing to protect them, with no barrier around their life to guard them from an invasion. Uh, This city has no protection. They are vulnerable. 
So a, a, a man who has no control over his spirit, a man who has no control over his emotions, is vulnerable. He's in a, a very difficult situation. Why? Because he is going to respond without thinking. He is going to re- seek to control his circumstances that he has no sovereignty to control when he should be concerned with controlling himself. The opposite of this verse is in Proverbs 16.32. Proverbs 16.32, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. He's saying it is better to control yourself than to try to control those around you. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. Uh, The idea here would be that the mighty would be able to get his will by exercising his strength. And the second part of the verse He who captures a city, he gets his desire by using his power to take it. The proverb says, the one who's slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. It is better to have control over your own passions than to be able to manipulate and control those around you. Better to exercise control over your own emotions than to have the power to cause others to do what you want. We are running out of time, so I have to skip over many more passages I want to take you to. I I do want to make the point that I was going to go in the New Testament now and demonstrate to you that self-control is a product of the Spirit of God in one's life. Certainly you're familiar with the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. What does the Spirit produce in someone's life? Self-control. The ability to tell themselves no in the moment. Why? Because they are being driven by the Spirit of God, the Word of God richly dwelling within them, causing them to think carefully and respond in a way that honors the Lord. This is the result in Ephesians 4, when they're putting off the old self and putting on the new self, they're then able to be angry and yet not sin. So the the anger itself, the passion, is not the problem. It's the sinning in response to that situation. And the believer who's being renewed by the word of God is able to face the same circumstance and yet have control over their emotions because they're yielding to the spirit of God. I just want to conclude, helping us think here about believers controlling our emotions. A Christian should have a high degree of emotional maturity. Why? Because the spirit of God is dwelling within them And the word of Christ should be causing us to be sensible in the moment. We should be exemplifying emotional maturity because a mind led by the scripture is not at the whim of your own passions, your own emotions. A pastor who trained me in seminary named Todd Murray had this memorable line. He said, I feel what I feel because I believe what I believe. What is he saying there? He's saying, my feelings that I ultimately embrace are a product of my theology. What I believe, I can tell myself how I should be feeling in the moment. I can seek to have control over those feelings rather than those feelings dominate and control me. I just want to conclude with what I find to be an incredible poem by Martin Luther as he speaks about feelings. He says, feelings come and feelings go, and feelings are deceiving. 
my warrant is the word of God, not else is worth believing. Though all my heart should feel condemned for want of some sweet token, there is one greater than my heart whose word cannot be broken. I'll trust in God's unchanging word till soul and body sever. For though all things shall pass away, his word shall stand forever. I love that. What is Martin Luther doing in that poem? He is saying, my heart, my feelings would cause me to feel this way. But there's a higher authority in my life. There's something that dictates how I act and how I feel that is more than my subjective emotions or feelings. It's the Word of God. The Word of God dictates how the believer responds in any situation. And that is the essence of emotional maturity. We are sensibly thinking before we are acting, and we're acting in the way that is in accordance with the Word of God. And rather than trying to use our emotions to outwardly control the situations around us, we are seeking to control our own heart's response to whatever situation the Lord brings us in. Christians do not live by feelings. Christians must live by faith in the Word of God. The emotionally immature is exemplifying ultimately a spiritual immaturity. And this is why it is so important for us to be identifying and cultivating, as we saw at the beginning, social maturity, guarding from self-love, guarding from fear of man, and identifying and cultivating emotional maturity, where in the moment we are calling ourselves to think critically and carefully about the Word of God, processing whatever happens in our lives through the Scripture, and controlling our own heart's response. This is uh, as we continue this series in maturity. The next time we're together, we'll uh, take a look at financial maturity and round out our series together. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this time. Again, we marvel at your wisdom on display for every area of life. Even as we just seek to tackle some topics in these Sunday evenings here in April, we acknowledge your word is sufficient. Your word is sufficient to equip us in every relationship to put off these heart conditions that may be natural to us, to love ourselves supremely and to protect ourselves in all relationships. And yet you call us to deny ourselves. You call us to love you supremely and out of our love for you flows a selfless love for others. I pray that that love would dominate our relationships, our social maturity. As we consider our emotions, Lord, we acknowledge we are weak. We are frail, and often the situations in our lives produce a flood of emotions that uh, cause us to respond in such a way that is not honoring to you. We know that your word and your spirit equip us to respond in that moment with self-control. So we express our, our need for your help. Lord, give us grace. May we be diligent in the times where our emotions are subdued, when we are thinking clearly and soberly in the moment to store up your word in our hearts so that we would not sin against you in the moment of the emotions flooding into our minds, but rather in that moment we would set our hearts and our minds on the truth and we would respond in a way that honors you. We pray you'd strengthen us in these areas for the glory of Christ. Amen.